Good morning again, everyone. So as we kind of bring a close to this short series I've been doing, these signposts, these different things that point us towards God and the reality of His existence, of His work in the world and in our lives, I couldn't help but think about this quote that I knew I had read somewhere, a quote from, from C.S. Lewis, that experience, that most brutal of teachers, but you learn, my God, do you learn. Now, I admit I'm breaking one of my cardinal rules by putting this up there, because usually I only want to put a quote up somewhere if I can find its attribution. Usually either I've heard a person say it myself, or I have the, the writing in which it occurred. Um, best research that I did, and I admittedly spent way too much time trying to source this quote, Um, best guess is now that either it was from one of his lectures or from an interview somewhere, or somebody just wrote it down one day and stuck his name on it. But either way, (laughs) it's a pretty good quote. It's it's like Abraham Lincoln once said, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. Um, Just wait for it. It'll it'll get there. Um, So... But regardless of whether C.S. Lewis was the the real source of this quote or not, I think it rings true to us. Um, We often think about experience as a teacher in like the classic example of the child who doesn't really believe that the stove is hot until they've touched it and they've burned their hands. So oftentimes we think of the the education that we get from experience being the education from, you know, the school of hard knocks. That we've, we've been hurt enough by our experience that we've learned a few lessons along the way. So often we think of the experience that we get, the, the teaching of experience, in negative terms, or at least in brutal terms, as this possible C.S. Lewis quote says. But you see, I think that experience can also be one of the greatest confirmations of the good that we know in our heads, but maybe we haven't fully let penetrate our hearts yet. Experience doesn't have to be a harsh teacher. Sometimes it can be one of the greatest blessings and and a joyful teacher. I think about all the times that, and I think we've all had this experience, where somewhere along the way, we're in school, we're learning something and, and from an academic standpoint and an intellectual standpoint. And I don't think any kid alive has ever gone through all of their schooling and not at some point said, when am I ever going to use this? It seems like this abstract, almost nonsensical thing. Why, why do I have to learn this? Why, you know, what, what's the point of this? Until that day comes when they suddenly realize, oh wait, I just used that thing that I was complaining about. Or how many of us, as we were preparing and and training for some pursuit, whether it be a hobby or even something in our careers, that the things that we learned didn't really become real. Or we didn't really understand how valuable they were and how true they were or how to apply them until we started to live those experiences. We started to try and put those elements of knowledge into practice. And we very quickly find out which parts of our preparation were true, which ones were maybe a little naive or idealized. I don't think it's an unusual experience for someone to say that the preparation that they did for something they pretty much had to throw out the window once it began because it turns out the knowledge didn't ring true. 
But I think we all understand that the knowledge that we possess is only really going to mean something to us once we've experienced how true that knowledge is in our actual lives. In this passage that we read a moment again, a moment ago from, from 1 John, the first seven verses of, of that letter, talks about this eyewitness account they had, that they were relating the things that they had seen with their own eyes, that they had experienced firsthand. They knew it was true because it was from their own experience. And he wanted to relate those things to us. Then he goes on and talks about fellowship. The fellowship that we have with one another. The fellowship that we have with Christ. And I love in the, uh, in the message paraphrase, the word fellowship isn't the word that they use in there. It admittedly can be kind of a churchy word. But the, the, word, the word that they use in there is, instead of fellowship, an experience of a shared life. Let me read you the same passage that was read a few moments ago, but in this message paraphrase. I think it will help us to see a slightly different angle than maybe we're used to. From the very first day we were there, taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes, verified it with our own hands. The word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you, in most sober prose, what we witness was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. This experience of communion with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. Your joy will double our joy. This, in essence, is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light, and there's not a trace of darkness in Him. If we claim that we experience a shared life with Him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another. As the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's Son, purges all sin from us. I love that paraphrase, that experience of a shared life. There's such an emphasis on those verses, on, on the experience that those apostles had, the experience that they want us to share in. Not just that first century audience of that letter, but all of us need to experience a life with God to fully understand the truth of the message. But there's a tension in experience, especially for we very modern people. These post-enlightenment minds that we have banging around in our heads. There's this tension in that we all, I think, somewhere deep down, we want to experience the divine. We want to have that first-hand experience of God in our lives, confirming the truth of what we know. Reminded of a couple of Psalms, the first five verses of Psalm 63 says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. 
With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. We want to behold his power and glory. We want to feel that his love is better than life. We want to be fully satisfied with our experience of him. It's another verse that was actually shared yesterday at at Scott's mom's funeral that was a favorite of his mom. As it was being read, I I had to write it down because it was just too perfect. It says, Psalm 62, 5 through, it says, Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. That is an expression of a deep understanding of God, a knowledge that isn't just in someone's head, but is in their entire being. It permeates them. They have lived a life with God. They have experienced God in their lives to such an extent that they can say, yes, my soul finds rest in God, and that their hope only comes from Him. We want that experience. I believe we all want it. But... I think we can be very easily distrustful of our own experience as well. We're uncomfortable with the the subjectivity of experience. See, things that are outside of ourselves, that we can study and and, and we can test, our modern minds, we prefer those things most of the time, I might say. We like to be able to, to observe from a neutral position. We like to be objective but I think that maybe sometimes, maybe more than we'd feel comfortable with, it's not such a bad thing to rely on something that we can't fully understand. I heard a line from A.W. Tozer, and I did find the source for this one um, recently, that I will never say holy, holy, holy to that which I have been able to decipher and figure out in my own mind. We want to understand so fully and so completely in this modern world. We want to shove out any possibility of uncertainty. That those subjective experiences, I think, give us an opportunity to let there be some mystery in our life. Let us be able to say, holy, 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 because it's bigger than we can understand, bigger than we can exactly put our finger on. But, see, we're much more comfortable with what God has done than what with what God is doing. Much of God's work in our lives, the experiences that we have that point to Him, are best and maybe even sometimes only recognized, only observed in the past tense. There are so many things in my life that I can look back on now and I can see how God was at work in a situation to lead me to Him or to lead me through a difficult time, to use me in some way in service to Him, that I really didn't recognize in the moment. And I don't think we'll ever come to a point where we are fully aware of what God is doing in the moment so clearly. But I think it would help us if we opened our eyes at least a little bit more to the possibility that what we're experiencing now is an experience of God working in our lives. Because it can be so easy to just walk through life unaware of what God is doing right now to show himself to you. I was thinking about these little slips of paper 
that I asked for a few, few weeks back, for two or three weeks in a row, asked for responses to this question, what points to God in your life? Now, some of you may remember that, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I guess, I put out a very similar little slip that just had the, a fill-in-the-blank of, I am thankful for, that I used in a, in a Thanksgiving lesson. And I got so many responses to that question. I am thankful for. People looking back and seeing things in their lives that they, will, they were thankful to God for. And when I read them all, I just couldn't help but say, I think we just wrote a psalm. <laughs> there were so many things that we were thankful for. But I have to say, I, I had an idea for something I was going to do with these little slips this time around, something a little bit different. But honestly, I didn't get quite enough of them back to really pull it off. I think it's a lot harder for us to say, this is something in my life that is pointing to God. I think it can be very hard for us to do that. It can be easy, I think, for us to to look back, to look at Scripture, look at creation, look at these other signposts we've seen, and saying, yes, I see God there, I see God there. But then when we look in the mirror... When we look inwardly at our own lives, it can be much more difficult for us to recognize the work of God that's happening right here and right now. It can be easy for us to grow so accustomed to what God is doing that we, I don't know, maybe we begin to find it ordinary. Or at least we just don't notice or we're not willing to admit the extraordinary that may be going on. But I really think that to truly truly know God. We have to live a life with him. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing, truly knowing God is clearly vital. It's the essence of eternal life to really know God. Know him in an intimate way. Reminds me of Psalm 34, 8. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not not read and see that the Lord is good. Not listen and see that the Lord is good. Listen and see, that would be kind of confusing anyway. But he's saying, taste and see. Experience deeply the goodness of God. Then you can have a fuller relationship with him. That we would only know the depth of God's love for us. I don't think we can know that from a distance. Even when the witness of creation and the witness of Scripture, they can both be easily dismissed if those witnesses never intersect with our own lives. It can be like two parallel tracks. I remember as a kid, you know, in the very earliest geometry exposure we got in elementary school, you know, talking about parallel lines. And the example they always gave was railroad tracks. They all go along, they stay the same distance from each other, and parallel lines, the thing about them is that you have to remember they never intersect. And they said, you know, what would happen if the railroad tracks just started you know, moving in? Obviously that wouldn't work, so it was a really good example. Parallel lines, they never come together. And while that's good for, you know, train cars going down the line, it's not so good if we allow these parallel lines to exist of this knowledge that we have, this, this, these witnesses of creation and scripture that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, and all the wonder that we can get from those. And then over here on the other side of our world is our everyday life. 
If those two things never come together, it can be really easy to stay living in the moment to moment and completely ignore those signposts. If we never let those intersect with our lives. Because see, those need to be living signs, or at least those signs need to take shape in our lives. Because see, we see the glory of God in creation because we've been walking with God. We see the beauty of God's story revealed in Scripture because we are living that story. And we are witnesses to the resurrection because we share in that resurrection. It is not something separate from ourselves. It's something that we're a part of. You know, Jesus said to his first disciples there, he said that they would be his witnesses, not just they would be his lecturers. They would go forth and say, this is what we experienced. This is what we saw with our own eyes. They made that truth deeply personal. And I think that's a big part of why they were able to be so effective in spreading the message of the gospel. Because they knew it to their core that it was true because they lived it. They didn't just study the word, they lived the word. You know, for that matter, for the first two, three hundred years of the church, they were the word. Before we had these, this written scripture assembled together, they were the messengers and they were the message. This is what the Lord has done in me. This is what I have seen. This is what God is doing. Join in that story with us. And that continues really all the way to us. I remember first in Philippians 2.13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's not God who acted. It's not God who did some things just in the past. But it is God who works, present tense, in you to fulfill his good purpose. And I think that's as true today as it was when it was first written. You know, as a, a bit of an aside, I've heard it said by many people, especially that there's been so much, so many studies done, so much written and spoken about people walking away from faith, walking away from the church, especially young people. And I've heard it said that, that many people, especially young people, lose their faith because their faith was in a book. And when the book becomes complicated or confusing, there's no faith in the person of Jesus that's left there to sustain them. There's no relationship. It's a faith based purely on knowledge acquired in the head that hasn't been experienced firsthand. Because see, a relationship is about an experience with another, a shared experience, an experience of life together, that paraphrase of fellowship that we saw earlier in the message. And I think the same can be true if your faith is in a religious system or the traditions of your family or in a certain leader or teacher or author. All of those things are going to fall down somewhere along the way. There'll be a moment where either the thing that you put your faith in, you found to be imperfect. Or even if you put your faith in something that came directly from God himself as, as creation, as in Scripture, when it becomes difficult for us, you can easily give up if the relationship, if the faith isn't in the man himself, Jesus Christ, and in the relationship that we've developed with him. So as we've gone through 
these signposts over these last couple of weeks. And I think it's important that we have all three of them. I'm actually going to put a bunch of text on the slide. Don't like fall over dead in shock here. <laughs> but see, creation, just as a reminder of where we've been, creation tells us that there is something greater than us, which gives us humility. And then scripture comes along and tells us that the something greater can be known, which gives us hope because it's not something distant and unknowable. But then life, and specifically a life with God, tells us not just that the something greater can be known, but the something greater knows you. The something greater wants a relationship with you. The story of God is not just this thing that's out there somewhere that's separate from yourself. And it gives us purpose. It gives our life a new and profound meaning when we understand that my story, your story, is part of God's story. That his pursuit of you has incorporated your life into his life. When God is being revealed in your life, it really does give your life a new and profound meaning. Because, you see, the call of Jesus was never just learn about me. It wasn't. Over and over and over again, we see the words, follow me. That's different. When he did say learn, it was actually in the context of, of living, of following as a disciple. In Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, very well-known passage, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And you've probably heard it before. I've heard it in countless lessons about this verse, about taking his yoke upon you to learn from him. And that, that image of, of the, the yoke, that when animals were being trained as, as plow animals most often. And there were, it would be one younger animal that really hadn't learned yet, how to pull the plow, how to maintain that straight line, how to, how to respond to the commands of, of the driver. And so it would be paired with an older animal, one, an experienced animal, one that knew how to follow the commands, knew how to do the job that needed to be done. And so they would be yoked together so that the younger could learn from the older, the inexperienced could learn from the experienced. Now, they didn't sit down in a classroom first, they didn't, you know, they didn't have, you know, your oxen lecturer stand up and say, you know, turn to page 15, you know, we're going to be talking about plowing today. No, it wasn't just this abstract conceptual learning. When Jesus says, come learn of me, come learn from me, he says, do it while walking with me. Learn about me by walking in my footsteps, with me walking next to you. That's how we're really going to learn about Jesus, not just in our heads, but in our lives. Our faith is not and cannot be an intellectual exercise. And in fact, those among us that I would consider the wisest, the ones whom I most admire and respect, are those not that know the most, 
Not with the most knowledge. I value knowledge. I find knowledge important. Don't get me wrong. But the ones that I admire the most aren't the ones who I've seen having accumulated the most knowledge. But those who've lived their life with all of its ups and downs, its blessings and its hardships, and have done it all with a steadfast faith. They've continued to walk, walking with God. They've continued to walk not on their own, but yoked to Christ, to learn from Him. Those are the ones who, when I look at, I'm in awe of their wisdom. One of the themes that I did find on those little slips of paper, and there were several good responses, so if you did turn one in, I'm not dismissing you, don't be offended. (laughs) There just weren't enough to do what my little project I had planned. But among the things that people did say that they saw in their lives that pointed them towards God, one theme that I found repeated was this church family. And the people of God, how it cares for one another, how it serves the example that it shows. It kind of brought me back to the lesson that Jay presented before this series began. Talking about those standing stones, those living stones that are a testimony and a witness to what God has done. You see, as the work of God impacts our own lives and brings us closer to Him, as the work of God makes us see Him more clearly and points us to Him more clearly, our lives bound together in that common experience, we become a signpost in and of ourselves, pointing not only our church to God, but also pointing the way to a world that desperately needs direction. It becomes a very reciprocal thing. It's a cycle that's a wonderful one to get into. You see, God works in my life to point to Him. But then my life then points to what I truly believe about God. We come to know God as we experience more and more His work in our own lives. But then we're also known by God through how our lives play out. He sees our faith as we live it, and so do those around us. Now I think about that judgment scene where Christ is separating the sheep from the goats, and the distinguishing characteristic between the two are how they live their lives and how much their lives looked like the life of Christ. How much they lived what they believed. Because if it's true that we only deeply and deeply believe that which we truly experience, I think it can also be said that we only truly believe the parts of the Bible that we actually live. If we're not actually living it, if we're not actually moving forward with it and integrating it into our lives, I don't know if we can say that we really believe it. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13 Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house right after he's called him. It says, Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Religious ritual to Jesus was nothing 
compared to living a life that was actually in line with the character of God. The sacrifice, well, that was all well and good, but what God really desired was the mercy. Don't just worship him with the things that you, that, that you were doing, the, the religious ritual, but be merciful. Be like God. Put that truth of God into practice. He wasn't there just to coddle those who had their religion right. He was there to call sinners who were ready to actually follow. Earlier this week, I heard Rick Ashley say, My greatest defense for the existence and character of God is not the arguments that I make, but the life that I live. Because there are so, so many people out there who I think want to believe. They've seen maybe some of these signposts. They've seen through creation that there's something greater out there, and, and they know because of just some cultural exposure to Scripture that, that there's possibly this revelation that helps us to know what that something greater is. But it might just take that third one. It might just take the sight of God working in you for their desire for belief to come to fruition. For their knowledge of God to take shape before them. Faith living out in flesh and blood. Makes me think of Thomas. You know, once again, every time I mention Thomas, I can't help but say, poor Thomas. <laughs> you know, the same disciple who, when they were headed back to Jerusalem, and said, you know, hey, let's, you know, Jesus, you know, they're, they're, all the disciples saying, Jesus, they're, gonna, they're trying to kill you back in Jerusalem, but says, no, that's where I'm going. And so Thomas stands up and says, well, let's go and die with them. But that's not the thing we remember Thomas for, no. We remember the doubting part. But I have to say, when that moment occurred, when Jesus had revealed himself to the other apostles, and Thomas comes along and says, you know what, unless I see it for myself. I mean, these men, they were his brothers. They had endured so much together. I mean, if he could trust anyone, he could trust them. But he needed that experience, that firsthand. It was, it was just too big, too amazing for just external witnesses alone. He couldn't just go with what someone else told him. He needed to experience it for himself. He needed to experience Jesus firsthand. Not all that different than the man who came to Jesus asking him to cast out the demon from his son. And Jesus talks about his, his belief. And, and he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe Help me overcome my own my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. You see, when I, I think that when we ask God to help us see Him at work in our lives, we're making a, a similar statement. We believe. We know. We have this knowledge, but we all desire for that knowledge to become more embedded more deeply into our lives. We know that it needs to become more real, more present in each and every moment, so that we, like Thomas, can have that first-hand experience of God and we can drop to our knees and proclaim, my Lord and my God. So that the things that we know to be true can be experienced so deeply that there is no longer room for dismissing the witnesses that we've been given. There's no longer room to just disregard all that God has done because we've walked with Him. 
We've experienced His love and His grace and His mercy firsthand so that we can say with boldness, that is my Lord, that is my God, that is my Savior. If you've experienced that love of His firsthand, if you've come to see God at work in your life, if you've heard Him calling you, and you know that the only way your faith can move forward, the only way that you can move forward in a life with Him is by truly beginning a life with Him. By coming in obedience to Him, to be baptized into His name, to accept the forgiveness and the new life that comes along with that, that He offers. If you want to do that this morning, we'd love to help you with that. Or if you need to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to study that with you. I'd love to get some more knowledge into your head, but only if you're committed to letting that knowledge penetrate your heart. Only if it's knowledge that you want to live and not just sort of understand. And if you're one of his and you feel like maybe this knowledge of your salvation has been locked up in your head for too long and you haven't been living it day to day, that that knowledge needs to become more real. You can ask God right now, God, reveal yourself to me more clearly. Help me to see you at work. We sing the song you know, so often, you know, there is a God and he is alive. We sing that he's alive. We believe that he's alive and that he's living and he's active. But sometimes we need a little bit of help opening our eyes to that truth a little bit more. And if you need that this morning, or if you need us to help you with that, if you need the prayers of this congregation, that you would come to him more fully and live a life that points to God. If there's anything we can do to help you, please let us know while you come and we stand and we sing.